0: The topic for this panel is going to be uh, the geopolitical and security implications of TTIP, and uh, we have an ex- grou- excellent group of panelists here um, who will provide us, I hope, a poignant opening remarks, and then uh, afterwards we're going to have a, a, a discussion uh, here sitting all uh, around in our chairs. Um, as, but let me go ahead and introduce the speakers. Uh, immediately to my left is uh, Phil Levy, who's a senior fellow at the... Um, Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, Fran Burwell is Vice President for the European Union and Special Initiatives at the Atlantic Council. Uh, And uh, Peter Rashish is a Senior Advisor for Trade and Transatlantic Relations at the Transnational Strategy Group. Um, uh, I'm glad that we're doing a panel on geopolitics. Uh, I have noticed throughout the day uh, that in almost every single panel, someone has mentioned the geopolitical importance of TTIP. Uh, there are people who claim that that the TTIP is all about geopolitics and security. Um, as, a, as a trade expert, I find that uh, dissatisfying. I, I want to talk about all the trade issues, uh, but it's true that there's a lot of uh, a motivation going on uh, in TTIP in, in political circles uh, that looks at primarily uh, the, the larger global picture and where TTIP fits into that in terms of U.S. and European foreign policy. Um, so uh, before we get into our, our panel presentations from our, our experts, I'd like to spend uh, just a few minutes uh, providing uh, backing up just a little bit um, and addressing a question that I, that I think doesn't get answered enough uh, that seems really interesting to me. And that is, why are we negotiating a TTIP now? Uh, the, the economic and political case for TTIP is not new. Uh, people have been talking about a U.S.-Europe free trade agreement for decades. Uh, the, the, the case for doing so is pretty strong, uh, the economic case. Uh, the, the value of the uh, US-European uh, relationship is, is not something new. It's not something that's very controversial, at least uh, among political elites and policymakers. Um, but as, we, as we've learned throughout the day, uh, coming to agreement on what a free trade agreement would look like is a very difficult task. Uh, so it's one that's not necessarily as controversial as it is difficult to achieve. And so uh, I think that, that throughout, throughout the years, there has been an understanding that this might be a good idea, but it's needed some more urgent motivation. Uh, and, and what is it about today that gives us that urgent motivation? And I think there are three things that I'd like to, I'd like to point out. And, and the first one is <laughs> that uh, when the Obama administration it came into office and, and announced its foreign policy, um, they, they, they announced what we all know is the, the pivot to Asia, which in hindsight uh, seems like a very provocative uh, thing to do. Um, because I mean, you can imagine the, 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 um, the, the imagery of the rhetoric, right, is to, is to move over this way, and when you do that, you turn around. And so they, the Obama administration was essentially showing its back to Europe, and I think that's that's how it was perceived uh, across the Atlantic. I don't think it was meant to be perceived that way, but it was. And so, what can Europe do to reach a handout and kind of pull the United States back? Um, and, and, and I think the idea of a, of a free trade agreement was an obvious choice for that. Uh, the second thing that's, that's a little unusual now, uh, and maybe not in the grand scheme of history, uh, but over the last uh, uh, couple of decades, uh, is that we are we are seeing a resurgent and openly belligerent Russia, uh, where I think people were hoping that we would not. And um, this is certainly a, 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 a major security issue for Europe. Uh, many Americans kind of see, I, I think they see things that happen uh, with Russia as sort of a, a chess game or a spy novel. Uh, that, that's not the case. Um, you know, on the European continent where these things are, are, are much more real and, and, and have uh, economic as well as, as security implications. And, and finally, um, I think that there is a, a realization that Europe and the United States have a common purpose in opposition to the growing influence economically and politically of emerging markets like Brazil, India, and China and that the introduction of a competing model for economic governance, one that is more state-focused, um, is, a, is a, a, a very clear contrast with what we might call Western values uh, and, a, and a Western approach to global governance. And in this sort of period that we are in, that we might call um, – we might call it the, the post-multilateral uh, era in terms of, of trade policy, where we have this uh, stagnation uh, of multilateral uh, negotiations at the WTO. Uh, people are trying to, uh, governments are trying to come up with new ways to pursue a, a liberal agenda um, and, and, a, and a free trade agenda. And we see the U.S. and the EU doing it separately. Uh, the United States is pursuing uh, bilateral mega-regional agreements Uh, the European Union uh, has a a similar policy. And um, the the ideology behind those policies is really the same. Uh, There may be a few uh, differences here and there, um, but compared to the worldview of China and India, the U.S. and the European Union are on the same page, but they're not at the same table. And it makes a lot of sense I think to that policymakers would be looking for at this moment a, a, a new a common institution to push and promote Western values and economic governance, and I, I don't I don't mean to say that the that the TTIP is going to be uh, you know somehow sort of replace the WTO or something like that, um, but but it it is a forum for pursuing an agenda that is a common one and that is a Western one and where the U.S. and the EU can be at the same table working together and at least start um, building some kind of, uh, of, of institutional structure that can, if, if we are all living in a post-multilateral uh, trade environment uh, can, can provide a kind of institutional uh, a background uh, for doing that. Um, so I think that while we talk about this, the, the uh, strategic and, and geopolitical implications of TTIP, I think it's important to remember that TTIP is, in a way, a creature of the current geopolitical environment. Um, and, uh, and, and, and maybe we're not all uh, in, in control Uh, Of geopolitics as much as being being controlled by it, Um, but let me let me pass the baton over to people who who know what they're talking about, and um, and we'll start with Phil Lee. Yeah, just yeah, just from my here. Sorry.
1: All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, So. I wouldn't, I'm not here to argue that TTIP is exclusively about geopolitics. It's not. I, I agree with Bill. I think the economics are very important and very interesting as well. Um, it's where I come from. But I think it is fairly clear that there is a significant geopolitical component. And if we wonder about the, uh, the geopolitical potential of trade agreements, we don't have to look terribly far to find them. After all, uh, if you look at what was the, the spark that sort of set off the Ukraine crisis, it was a stance that Ukraine was taking or potentially going to take about an, a trade alliance with the European Union. Uh, when they did not come about, then you, you had a series of protests. Because trade agreements can they, – they certainly have direct economic effects, but they can also signal alliance. They can signal you know, where there are partnerships and where there are friendships. So I think it's by no means a stretch to say that there's a significant component, and that's what I'm going to try to address very briefly so that we can have plenty of time uh, to be conversational. Um, I'm going to make three arguments uh, as to what, are, what I see at least as these sort of geopolitical components – of the, of the TTIP. Um, the first is, I think you can perhaps view this a little bit as a renewal of vows between the US and the EU, or the US and Europe, um, more broadly. The, of course, it's nothing new to have a, uh, an alliance, and an alliance that goes well beyond economic matters. You've had the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, since 1949, um, and you've had that kind of a security partnership that's existed. The problem is that some of this has gotten a little bit stale, as, as Bill described. It was the, the pivot to Asia, which could be seen as a pivot away from Europe. I don't I think that was an, potentially an unintended byproduct, but it does follow fairly directly. It, this goes in this goes in a couple in both directions. However, if you look at the the European commitment to NATO, it is a repeated complaint of the United States that very few countries in Europe meet their their notional NATO obligation for spending 2% of GDP on defense measures. I believe in 2014, it was Estonia, Greece, and the UK um, who met those commitments, with a number of them wondering whether that was going to keep up. I hear there have been financial problems in Greece. Um, So I I think, you know, on the one hand, there's this. There's each of them where you could call things into question a little bit. You know, how much does each really care about the other? So a successful TTIP can serve as a, a renewal of vows. It is not the same as a as a sort of concrete security assurance, but maybe you can think of it as a necessary but not sufficient condition, that if you couldn't pull something like this off, if you can't coordinate even at this level, it calls the other into doubt. Um, the second point that I would make is there's a direct security benefit from having stronger economies. Um, this is the thing that, that people sometimes stress. You, I think a Europe that was growing faster would be, more confident um, and and better able to meet its challenges and is something that the U.S. greatly desires. The the difficulty in drawing out this argument is often what is at the forefront when people make these, these cases is this may sound obvious, but the size of the benefit is probably proportional to the liberalization that actually takes place. There, there sometimes seems to be a bit of a sense that if you just do a TTIP, then growth will spring forth. And some of this uh, may be fostered by the, the amazing ability to estimate precisely the growth effects of an agreement that hasn't been reached and where we don't actually know what it looks like. Um, it, it often – you might get the impression it just doesn't matter. You, you get the growth anyways from a signing ceremony. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I think actually there, there is tremendous potential to foster growth um, and give these benefits – But it will mean that people need to tackle some of these difficult issues. And as we heard on the previous panel, there's some serious political obstacles to that that one has to overcome. Um, In fact, as I said earlier, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the TTIP is it's almost all difficult political challenges just because of the prior experience of liberalization between the countries. The exception on this, um, not the exception on difficulty, but where you can imagine a very direct big economic benefit might be in the energy sector that because of some of the restrictions that the US has put on things like you know trading liquid natural gas and um, oil exports there is a there is a privilege given to FTA partners in this and so that's where you could see something directly and obviously when is one is looking at um, the alternative suppliers that Europe has for natural gas such as Russia that plays into, directly into some of the security concerns so that I think is one of the most direct instances. Uh, The third point that I'll make, I think also serves a little bit as an answer to Bill's question, of sort of why now, or at least my version of an answer, which is I think there was a sense that um, Europe was being pulled apart a bit by centrifugal forces, that the the difficulties in the Eurozone, um, questions about sort of Britain's status within the Union um, looked like this made this a particularly difficult time. I think it's worth noting as we look at the history that there was sort of an asymmetric ardor when it came towards pursuing all of this that europe had been a bit more enthusiastic the u.s seemed to drag its feet you had a high level working group and eventually you know then you finally have you know vice president biden grumbling well as long as it's on one tank of gas and i guess we could maybe do something like this um it was not necessarily with, with the same degree of passion but i think that was part of the motivation that the idea that here is a project which could look like the best of europe that it was the European countries not squabbling, but sort of working together, working with the U.S. Um, you know, it, it makes. We don't know what would what the uh, what the commercial barriers would look like if you were to have the EU break up if Britain were to decide to decide to go on its own. But the more appealing it looks to have to be within the European Union. The, the stronger the union, I think, is the thought. And so, therefore, there's a timeliness to that and an impetus. And that, of course, has very direct effects with the EU being a very significant partner for the U.S., partly in facing challenges from Russia, but actually all around the world as a, sort of, as a like-minded partner. Um, so two closing notes uh, with that said. So the flip side of all of these salutary effects from a successful agreement, I think, is there are downsides to, to a failure, that if this doesn't work, um, then maybe a commitment gets called into question that wouldn't if it were never tried. I'm not actually sure that it's better to have loved and lost um, in this particular case. Um, And the last point I'd make, and this actually is is a follow-on to the the last panel, um, where there was optimism that at the end of the day um, a a certain responsibility would sweep through Congress um, because there is this geopolitical thing. And so whatever your qualms about... Uh, sort of parochial uh, interest groups. At the end of the day, you'd say geopolitics and you'd make the right vote. I would note that's one reason why it's so damaging to have uh, former Secretary of State Clinton come out as she did because usually one of the ways that happens is, and you can go back and look at the votes, you'll get all the past secretaries of state kind of line up and sign a letter and say, trust us, you know, whatever the economics of this, it's a geopolitical imperative. And they'll just, to have the most recent... Secretary of State come out and say, no, it's not worth it. And, of course, we're talking about the TPP here, not the TTIP. But it is setting the tone for for how it does. It, It does call that into question a bit, because who else would one look to to sort of judge the geopolitical imperative? So I'll stop there and look forward to our discussion.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me here to speak, it's uh, very interesting to be here at Cato. Um, we've heard a lot about TTIP today and most of the discussion has focused on whether TTIP will be finalized in the economics of such a deal. Uh, if you arrived today thinking that TTIP was going to be relatively simple, I'm sure you've been disabused of that uh, notion. There are questions about coherence on the US side and the EU side, about regulatory frameworks, and certainly issues about how TTIP will relate to other multilateral trading arrangements. There are tons of reasons for TTIP to fail. But my view is that TTIP cannot fail. It would be a strategic disaster for the US and Europe if they fail to reach this agreement. And because this is recognized by leadership on both sides of the Atlantic, we will reach a conclusion on the agreement. We do face a very serious uphill battle in Europe uh, about um, certain views on the arrangement. But as I talk about in this, I think those are, in fact, part of the strategic battle that is being waged in Europe right now. Um, When TTIP was launched, it was seen primarily in terms of Jobs and growth. In fact, some of us who'd been advocating for it kind of thought it would be called not TTIP but the Jobs and Growth Pact. But um, uh, at that time, the European economy was really struggling, and although the U.S. economy was getting better, we were heading into the uh, we were uh, looking at recent elections, and the Obama administration certainly wanted more uh, more growth over here. Um, but from the very beginning, it was clear that TTIP was a, going to be a strategic accord. And the first reason for that is just simply its size. We've heard a lot about how the Trans-Pacific Partnership is strategic because it brings in 36% of the global GDP. Well, TTIP is 46% of global GDP. So I think we need to realize that this is, should it be concluded, much bigger than TPP. Uh, secondly. As we've heard a lot about today, there is the potential within TTIP to create global standards and regulatory frameworks uh, that companies will use throughout their supply chains. And this means that because of the size of our markets, these will essentially become standards and regulatory practices that companies use around the globe. We will, the US and Europe together, become global regulators, which is undeniably a strategic position. Third, I think the strategic nature of TTIP becomes even more apparent when looking ahead a few years. We've already had the IMF label China as overtaking the US as the biggest economy in the world when you look at purchasing power parity. And clearly, our 46% of global GDP that we have now is not going to last. So this is kind of a window right now of when we can get an agreement that will help solidify the types of rules and rule of law in global commerce that has served us so well over the years. Um, I would point out that it's not the first time that trade agreements or trade relationships have been seen as fulfilling a strategic purpose. This goes back at least a century, if not more. Not always um, successfully have, Analysts argued that economic ties are, those countries with strong economic ties are less likely to go to war. And I would just point out Norman Angel's The Great Illusion uh, arguing, it came out in 1913, that the European economy was so integrated that war between those countries was futile. And uh, Tom Friedman once argued that no two countries with McDonald's franchises had gone to war. And uh, just just a few months later, um, NATO bombed Serbia, and that was the end of that, but nevertheless. Um, so, but despite this uh, kind of mixed record of success, the US has used FTAs to indicate political support for particular governments at particular times. The US Columbia FTA and the US Morocco FTA can hardly be justified as upgrading relations for major trading partners. Uh, but they did serve to indicate support for uh, governments in those countries at key times. Um, As Secretary of State Kerry said recently, uh, speaking about the need for trade promotion authority, the right kind of trade agreements are actually critical because they create habits of cooperation that help us not only economically, but in everything else we do. So um, I think TTIP is one of those agreements that would have been a strategic agreement even if the world weren't changing as we negotiated this agreement. Um, We have seen since TTIP started, since the negotiation started, and certainly since the 2011 convening, or 2012 convening of the high-level working group, a real change in Europe's environment in particular. Not only are we seeing uh, instability in the South, but the real question in terms of TTIP is uh, Russia's aggression not simply against Ukraine, Um, and the idea that it might move closer to the EU. And you very rightly pointed out that one of the crucial points was Ukraine's decision to accept the the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, but also Russia's uh, aggression against the EU itself. I think for many years, Russia underestimated the EU. It thought it was just merely this kind of trade association between countries. But as the Central European countries went into the EU and their trade became diverted to the West, as their incomes grew and as their legal systems changed, Russia learned that this was very different from what it had expected. Um, I do think uh, you know, for all of those who think that the EU is a failed organization, I would just point to the considerable reshaping of Central Europe that we have seen since those countries have gone into the Union. Um, Therefore, TTIP, as the current major project between the US and the EU, is a prime symbol to those who are opposed to it of both Europe's competence and influence and the strength of the transatlantic partnership. Thus, TTIP's success, I would argue, is strategically essential. A failure of those negotiations would be one of the best indications possible to Vladimir Putin and others that the U.S.-European partnership is just words and has no real impact. The credibility of the partnership would be close to zero. So that's the negative side. But there's also a positive side, a strategic opportunity side, rather than a challenge side to TTIP. So I think if we get TTIP concluded, the doors open on some options for us. First, it presents opportunities to tie non-EU European countries more closely to the Atlantic community. In the Balkans, the EU already has trade agreements with Albania, Montenegro, Macedonia, Serbia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, mostly in the form of stabilization and association agreements. And it's generally regarded that when those countries are ready, they will eventually become members of the EU. It is time for the US and the EU, once they have a TTIP, to think about involving those countries in conversations about how they join, at least elements of TTIP, as they move closer to integration with the EU. As these countries work on the chapters of EU accession, perhaps it is when they close the free movement of goods and trade uh, chapter that they, are able to pick up certain elements of TTIP. Speeding up the accession of these countries to TTIP and announcing that in a joint US-EU declaration would, I think, provide a good incentive for some of these countries who need incentives, quite frankly, to move forward with their uh, negotiations and would indicate our willingness to support countries when some of them are under pressure to stay close to old allies. TTIP also provides an excellent opportunity to show solidarity with Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. All three of these countries have a DCFTA with the EU. The Ukrainian one will go into effect, uh, I believe January 1st, 2016. Um, Whether they proceed towards EU membership or not, giving them some kind of a relationship with CTIP is something that could very much help keep them uh, heading in the right direction as members of the transatlantic community. We could either wait until the, all of their DC FTAs are, are have moved forward and are mature or we could actually announce something earlier and I think give them some, uh, some reassurance at a time when they very much need it. Another country that is kind of sitting midway right now is Turkey. They have a customs union with the EU and I think that they have certainly been very concerned about what TTIP will make, will mean for them. And we have kind of been putting them off and saying, wait till it's concluded, and then we'll see. I think perhaps a more forthcoming attitude on that might be very useful. There are very real questions for me about Turkey's future direction. And I'm one of those who believes that Turkey is very unlikely to become a member of the European Union anytime in the near future. So we need to find a different way station for Turkey, if you will. And we should ask ourselves whether we can use TTIP for that. Energy is another area, and just very briefly, um, simply signing the agreement should relax some of the restrictions uh, on the export of oil and gas to Europe from the United States. It's not clear that any of our exports will actually go to Europe as opposed to going on the market, the world market, and since these commodities are more and more fungible, um, freeing up other things that might uh, might be accessible to the Europeans. I think, though, that it's often uh, that it's worth asking uh, what other th- elements of energy might be included in uh, a TTIP. The Europeans have advocated for an energy chapter. Um, I owe a thanks to uh, GMF, which has a new report out that looks at some of this. Um, but some of the things that they're asking for in terms of limits or, or codification of state assistance to energy companies and things like that. When you start thinking about it, you realize that it is a way of uh, reinforcing themselves as they face a struggle against Gazprom and other energy companies that don't always play by the same rules. So I think that's another area that we should look at. Finally, um, a successful conclusion of TTIP will open the door, as was discussed earlier, to bringing together a whole bunch of different bilateral FTAs that the US and Europe have around the world. Um, So we now have free trade agreements Uh, separately each with Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru, and South Korea. We also have, uh, we have agreements with Canada and Morocco. The EU is very close to, has concluded and is trying to get ratified the Canadian one. They're working on the Moroccan one. And there are a few others, particularly once we have TPP actually done uh, and approved. Uh, We should be thinking about what this means. Uh, We would have to deal with some issues such as inconsistencies between rules of origin and elements of that kind, but this could be a very serious basis. TPP and TTIP together could provide a very serious basis for renewed platform of global trade negotiations, Um, if not actually in the WTO by creating a much bigger network of trade negotiation, of, uh, of bilateral trade agreements.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Bill, and also I want to congratulate the uh, Cato Institute, really, on this very uh, lively and engaging event. I'm glad to be here. Um, I share the assumption of this um, session, which is that there is a uh, an interrelationship between geopolitics and trade. Uh, in a very, and I, and also I think uh, I share a kind of light motif that's gone through the discussions, which is that, in a general way, trade negotiations are a kind of soft power that help communicate, um, uh, you know, a country's global priorities or the priorities between uh, two sets of countries, and I think in the case of the U.S. and the EU, TTIP is certainly. Um, uh, a very strong declaration of common purpose between the U.S. and the E.U., which really are for each other the most important uh, political and economic partner. And I think, you know, notably it would be the first treaty-based um, relationship that the U.S. would have with the E.U. And then, and then so that's starting from the trade policy. And on, on the geopolitical side, you know, geopolitics, uh, I think, if done right, helps to create a more stable international environment, and that allows countries to put the resources that flow from trade packs uh, to better use. But I also don't think we should um, get too carried away about the relationship between trade and geopolitics. And I I think we first of all have to be very clear about the two worlds that they inhabit because even though there is an interrelationship, they do start from different points and they do generally inhabit different worlds. Um, I think we have to, but we should also understand how these two worlds are converging. And then I think uh, finally understand what the limits uh, are to uh, what trade can do for geopolitics. So I think as a starting point, um, if you, if you, from the trade policy side, you know, it's pretty clear what trade policy aims to do, which is to create economic growth and higher, liver st- higher living standards. And it's done this, uh, importantly, through in the la- over the last seven years through the, w- the, G- the GAD and the WTO, through uh, in an environment where there are, where there are rules uh, and sort of commonly accepted rules. And on the other hand, geopolitics um, oper- really focuses on something very different which is, again, in the, done, done best, it should focus on maintaining and creating international order, but it does this in an environment where there aren't any rules. Um, and But to my second point is I think now what we're seeing is that these cards are being reshuffled a bit. And I think what we're seeing is in the last uh, decade or so, we see that we have threats to international order, um, less stability, more uncertainty, that don't stem from... Sort of traditional geopolitics, political and military confrontation. But I think we have less international order stemming from a breakdown of global economic rules. And what, how do we what, how do we how do we see that? Well, I think we've we've talked about this. We see that you know countries like China and Russia, which are tran- challenging transatlantic values uh, and interests through a, pursuing a statist economic model. But we've also seen a number of uh, large emerging economies decide to abrogate investment treaties. We've seen the stalemate in the Doha round that we've discussed, which I think is, you know, in large part owing to the divergence and diversity of economic models that a lot of the members have. And then in a slightly different field, we've seen the establishment of regional um, financial institutions. So it seems to me in this kind of environment, establishing new rules for the global economy is a key strategic objective for the U.S. and E.U., and I would say it's on the par of, with the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions after World War II. And so... Trade and TTIP have, has its traditional job to do, creating prosperity, but also its, its new job of creating more international order. Um, and I think that if you look at T, TTIP, I and mean, we don't know what's in it, but if you look at the kinds of things that are communicated about TTIP, that it's going to focus on state-owned enterprises, intellectual property, innovation, labor, environment, Internet freedom, I think these are the kinds of things where if, are, if the U.S. and EU do come up with new rules, uh, and adopted global level, we will uh, be able to c- push a, a little more international order out into the into the economy. Um, and I think that we can see this. this there, we see we can see examples that this works. Um, and I think we can see that the fact we can see examples that what uh, developed countries do together uh, doesn't have to be a dead end, but can lead kind of can spread. And I think that's I think frankly that's Mexico's experience with U.S. and NAFTA. Um, you know, Mexico and the U.S. have become highly intertwined as as economies, uh, particularly through the phenomenon of, of, of supply chains. And it's really in many industries it's very hard to imagine the U.S. Uh, U.S. prosperity without Mexico's prosperity. And I think it's not by chance that Mexico has become a very strong ally for the United States, for the EU, for that matter, uh, in supporting an open rules based global economy. And um, and again, I think this Mexico's experience in NAFTA points to another. Uh, way uh, that TTIP can be helpful in this regard, and that is uh, through the countries that decide, uh, if and when it decides to expand, which countries those will be. And my constellation would be a little bit different uh, from France. There's some overlap, but I have a, I, it's not quite the same. I think that, uh, you know, again, starting point, which are the countries that can help with US and EU prosperity and also help push for uh, the right kind of rules for the global economy, create more international economic order. And definitely, I think, you know, looking from the U.S. perspective, uh, that means Canada and Mexico. Uh, you know, uh, importantly, both members of TPP. So that would help to create a bridge between the two, uh, the U.S.'s two strategic uh, economic uh, initiatives. And then for the EU, I agree that Turkey is, is, uh, is very important as well as the EFTA countries, Switzerland, Liechtenstein uh, Iceland and Norway and I think among those groups I would agree with Fran that Turkey is particularly strategically important because even though it's not a member of the BRICS, uh, it is a large emerging economy, it's not a, not a party in any of the three big mega regionals out there and I think it would show that TTIP is not you know, just a rich men's club but that really is open to others. Um, and then um, I think if you look a little bit further afield I actually think that the number of economies in Latin America which uh, should be put towards the top of the list. I think Chile, Colombia, and Peru, you know, are all market economies, very outward looking. Along with Mexico, they're part of the Pacific Alliance. Uh, Chile and Peru are a part, part of TPP. So I think they would be very natural uh, allies. Now, if you extend the telescope a little further, and also I, I will admit using a little more political imagination, I think that, that Brazil's membership would be a, another asset for TTIP. Let's, you know, after the US and EU, Brazil is the largest Atlantic Rim economy. Uh, it, means very strong, it maintains very strong trade and ships with both the US and the EU, and not only in commodities, but also in some high, uh, more sophisticated manufacturing sectors. And, you know, Brazil is a member of the BRICS. And if there could be a, uh, a new domestic consensus in Brasilia about uh, the role of trade in creating prosperity in Brazil, I think that, you know, that Brazil's membership at TTIP would be a very strong signal uh, that there's this new dynamic uh, being created uh, where transatlantic economic rules are really uh, uh, be- being brought to to, to other important actors in the global economy now um, let me let me close with uh, with this third point about about you know where the so sort of recognizing the limits of the marriage of, of trade policy and geopolitics so you know TTIP's... Should focus on these two jobs it has. One is a traditional job of creating prosperity, and then there's a more, there's newer job of uh, creating uh, updated international economic rules, more international economic order. But I do think we need to go be careful about what, if any, role beyond that TTIP should be enlisted to do. Um, and I, I think particularly if we we should be careful about communicating that TTIP is an element of transatlantic uh, hard power projection. Uh, and and that it's sort of a complement to the U.S. and European approaches to traditional foreign policy challenges. Um, And, I, I, you know, sort of to borrow a phrase, that's not where TTIP's comparative advantage lies. Um, We have a lot of effective tools to confront classic national security uh, issues. NATO was first among them, but also bilateral uh, defense arrangements, uh, political and economic sanctions, diplomacy, foreign aid. But the U.S. and EU... Have very few tools, other I think, I think, other than trade policy, to advance uh, this this agenda, this strategic agenda for the international economy. And I think we need to be careful about overburdening TTIP. But not only that, uh, if national security concerns become too central uh, to TTIP, either through the issues that are covered or the countries that are uh, given priority for membership, then I think there is really a chance that the results will be suboptimal economically. And that means you'd have fewer resources available for the U.S. and the EU to confront, um, to confront their foreign policy challenges. So I think the better part of valor then for TTIP is to focus on, these, on this new kind of uh, geopolitics of creating uh, better international economic rules and, and leave the other things for, for, uh, for other institutions and, uh, and uh, vehicles. Thank you.
0: We are going to spend a a quick minute uh, getting mic'd up down uh, down here so that we can do a a question and answer uh, session uh, as soon as we all get situated. Okay, before I ask some questions to the panelists and, uh, and open it up to the audience, I'd like to ask if any of you all have uh, uh, any responses you want to make. I don't, I don't know that there was a whole lot of, uh, you know, very fierce disagreement or anything, but, it, but if, you, if you heard something from the other panelists that you feel like you want to respond to.
1: Just one, since uh, Peter closed on sort of whether or not to link to hard power, I, I agree with your point. When I was arguing about NATO, it was just simply that there is a sort of common mm-hmm. interest, and this would sort of work for us. Not it was by no means an advocacy that we should explicitly work security matters into the TTIP. I think your point was very well taken. That this is the, yeah. it's often many of the same people, and therefore the, the to the extent they're able to cooperate and work together, there, there's some positive spillovers in that sense, but not an explicit linkage.
0: Well, th- then let me ask. Um, What do you think is the most important trade issue, um, negotiation issue within a TTIP, within the creation of a TTIP, in terms of of strategic uh, importance uh, for Europe?
3: Well, I I think if you want to look at, you know, sort of issue by issue rather than sort of taking it from a bigger picture point of view, and it's been mentioned, I think energy is kind of the win-win in that sense. You know, it, it, create, look, it if, we, if we do have a very liberal energy regime across the Atlantic, it's very likely to create more prosperity, but it'll, there's no question it will also be a big boost to European security.
2: I would add that I think the very basic market access, although it's not that important to the US and EU itself... But if you're talking about extending TTIP at all or including others who have a DCFTA with the EU, I think it's the simple thing. It's the thing that makes sense to, to the publics, mm-hmm. And uh, I think it is the one that many countries, for example, uh, who already have FTAs with the U.S. and the EU may not be able to participate right away in some of the regulatory Uh, Agreements that are made, and they wouldn't, for example, drug testing and things like that. Their own stand, their own agencies wouldn't be able to uh, provide certification at the level that we want, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But market access is something that is a very useful tool, even though it's the very basic part of TTIP and the one we don't think about that much.
1: I I would sign on for in terms of direct effect with energy, Um, and I think Fran made a very good point in her presentation, Mm -hmm. which is that. It's not necessarily that we would expect to see large energy flows directly from the US to Europe, but even having that capability there. Um, and you know one of the things that has sort of come out is when you talk about things like liquid natural gas, this is not something you set up overnight. you don't you know hit a crisis and then okay, by next month we'll have this, you build terminals. it takes quite a while. So having the possibility to do some something. In an ideal world, that itself sort of forestalls a crisis. It prevents somebody else from flexing their muscle that way. So in terms of direct strategic effect, I'd pick energy.
0: Uh, let me also ask uh, one thing that that was not talked about um, uh, in the presentations um, is uh, how is how is the, the strengthening of the U.S.-European uh, alliance through TTIP uh, going to impact e- either one of those economies' relationship with China. Uh, we, we always talk about China in relation to the TPP, and it's not, it's not a party, but, but there's so much about China in, in the rationale for the TPP. Uh, where does that come into play for TTIP?
2: I think it strengthens uh, both the US and the EU in their dealings with China, because it says, look, here's a major part of the rest of the world economy that has set up certain uh, disciplines that are to be abided by. Um, we sometimes talk about the U.S. and the EU. At, I mean, the U.S. and China as the G2, but it's actually the EU and China that are much bigger trading partners. <laughs> so, I think you know we need to have a certain amount of um, humility about this. But I think together, the U.S. and EU, if they have an agreement, uh, this is something that will make uh, will help. Companies and others, investors in China, and those who trading with China, more on the rule of law side and expectations uh, in terms of the WTO as well. I,
3: I would just you know, add to that that I don't. I mean, I agree with what Fran said, but I think we also need to be careful about how we communicate TTIP in, to the degree <laughs> that it's not against anybody. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's for the U.S. and the EU. It's for creating certain kind of economic rules, which, as I argued, I think Korea would create more order, which is good for everyone, even if it's a challenge for in- individual economies on certain aspects of those rules. So while I agree that it would, it would strengthen um, uh, kind of uh, the ability of the U.S. and the EU to, to um, assert each other's, each, their, their interests, um, I, I think it's also uh, should be clear that it's not against not against anyone, and I think going back to we talked about the TPP, uh, while it's probably a long time from now, I don't see why we should exclude China from the TPP, for example. I don't think the TPP should be seen as against anyone, but rather in favor of certain kinds of rules and certain interests.
1: I So I agree with that. I think um, one way to see all of this is to sort of look back at 2008. In 2008, you had this big push in uh, at the WTO to try to conclude the Doha Talks. It didn't work, and there was a schism, and a schism between um, the, those countries that wanted to pursue high standards agreements and those who wanted to, pr- to go with a more traditional approach to trade were largely border barriers and, and perhaps less ambitious. You had China and India on the less ambitious side. You had the US and Europe and um, some of the Asia Pacific partners on the higher standard side. You can see the current, the, the subsequent moves as with sort of the launch of both TPP and then ultimately TTIP as a way to work around, to not have that agenda stopped because there were certain countries that were, at that point, unwilling. Um, one interesting difference, the TPP, at least, from its from its founding, was fairly explicit that it was open to new members. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, in, in, you know, the question is, what about China? What does China matter in all this? Well, and so you've had Ambassador Froman say in the TPP context that um, when China's relative is ready to meet those standards. It would be welcome to to try to, to join. Um, it might be nice to have TTIP make a similar statement. This talk about this is setting standards, but it's also open um, once those standards are established. We haven't had quite the same kind of statement. So I think in terms of where does this stand relative to China, it's strengthening this move towards high standards. Um, the TTIP has not been quite as forward leaning as the TBP in saying in being explicit that when anyone else is willing to meet those standards, they're welcome to join.
0: Do you think that that might be a weakness in the TTIP? Um, Peter alluded to this, right? If you have high standards in the agreement, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's the economic benefit, oh, you want to bring these countries up to your high standards. But if your goal is to, for geopolitical and strategic reasons, to incorporate more countries into your club, uh, when you when you set high standards, you, Im, you make it more difficult. And I and I know I mean this is a, a, a an important part of EU integration. You know how do you get these countries to to be able to join the club? And there's there's a lot of uh, subsidizing and and, and, and uh, reform that has to go on. Uh, and it's a long process. E, is that something that, that we should be particularly worried about with TTIP? Does does it mean that we that that a, a, a less ambitious agreement might be a better agreement?
3: Well, if you look at the TPP, um, I think it was, someone mentioned this earlier today, it's a pretty high standard agreement. It may not be as high standard as what, what, what TTIP ends up with, but it's a pretty diverse group of countries that have signed up to it. And, you know, there may be some ways to, uh, there probably will be some ways to help some of those countries adapt to those higher standard rules, either through, you know, sort of over time or other things. But I think just declaring that they want to be part of that world, I think, or that even of even itself has value.
1: I think there's definitely a trade-off there. I think you're right. And I think the way China has often approached these things marks the other extreme, where you can have things which are, it's a little bit oversimplifying to call them sort of friendship agreements, but the, it's the agreement part which you emphasize far more than the sort of commercial substance. So, yes, I think this is an, uh, you know, there are ways to have those sort of friendship agreements, but the, this is a, a conscious decision that it is important to set these rules, has, and there, there is a cost that way. That it, and you've, you've seen this debate most explicitly with the role of China in the TPP, mm-hmm. that you'll have some people say, well, strategically, it makes no sense to have a country that's so significant on the outside. It is if your goal is to propagate the standards.
2: I think um, it makes a lot of sense for TTIP to preserve a very high standard of ambition. And I think one of the challenges for TTIP is going to be that both of the parties are used to negotiating with much weaker opponents and now we have the two elephants negotiating with each other so to speak Um, and so it would be very very difficult to introduce another party into this negotiation I think Um, but I think the question is once you have the agreement are there things you can do as as Peter said to help others uh, reach all reach some of the disciplines they may not reach them all at once You may have to make decisions about whether they've reached sufficient to buy into part of the agreement. I think we could keep a lot of trade lawyers very busy with this for a long time. Um, But I think there are all sorts of questions we should be asking ourselves once we have a better idea of the shape of the agreement.
0: Well, why don't we open it up to questions from the audience? I
4: just have a couple of observations. Okay. It seems to me that if what we want to do is strengthen the Western alliance. Uh, we should not necessarily look at what happens in the field of trade. I, I, I accept the the, defini- the the distinction between hard and soft, and uh, agree that the purpose of a trade agreement should be trade, and anything else should be s- subordinated to it very carefully. The problem with the problem with the problem with with NATO is simply that the Europeans won't pay for it, and under the present you know s- situation of duress, they're unlikely to want to do it. I mean, they've had plenty of chances to do it, but that's where I would put my my eggs. As far as the the um, the, the question of standards goes. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, but I would just underscore the fact that, you know, um, TTP has been arrived at. I mean, it's, the agreement has been concluded, and it doesn't involve only harmonization of standards, which is something that's fairly technically easy, but raising standards or, or providing them, in the case of Vietnam, where they don't really exist. So it, it involves what you want to, might say a missionary effort. It's a different kind of responsibility than anyone would meet in, um, in, in, in TTIP. So I guess that's about, uh, about all I, want, I have to say. But I do think it is, it is, it is really important that, 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 that tr- agreements about trade don't get un- encumbered unnecessarily with geopolitical considerations. And I think they can even stand in the way, uh, and as you know, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about the chances of TTIP at all, but with, with finding you know, Europe-wide consent um, in a union that involves, that has members that are not members of NATO, histories of, histories of neutrality, uh, who are, some of them, strategically vulnerable. We can, you know, the na- nations I'm talking about. And I just think it raises more more, more questions that are really, uh, really necessary for TTIP. And they should maybe be shelved or rediscussed after the negotiations are concluded, if and when that happens.
2: Any response to those?
1: Remarks? I just, again, I don't think anyone was, was suggesting an explicit linkage that mm-hmm. says, here's the NATO chapter of, of TTIP. Yeah. But just, as, as you very well, as you note know, quite correctly, There's been this long-standing push of, well, please make your contributions to NATO as you're supposed to, which hasn't been especially effective over the decades. And so the question is, what else can one do? And economic strengthening and perhaps renewal of belief in the project and the partnership could potentially be helpful, but it would not be an explicit linkage.
2: I think um, since I made the suggestion about linking Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia uh, to TTIP, future I think we really struggle in situations such as we faced in Europe's East right now with trying to find the right kind of um, tools levers to encourage good behavior or changes in behavior and the sanctions uh, have been in my mind uh, a real success in terms of transatlantic integration and, and coherence but they have not necessarily we're not it's not clear that they've changed Putin's behavior um, Under these circumstances, I think there's a real question. For example, Georgia is trying to get MAP at uh, the Warsaw Summit, and I think there will be a real question about the security implications of that and whether that then puts Georgia on the road, as was said in the Bucharest summit, NATO summit, to become a member and what that means for Article 5 for a country that is uh, rather geographically vulnerable. And what can we do? To strengthen that country and to show our allegiance for that country without necessarily going the whole way of Article 5. And I think that we need to be more creative about those types of arrangements. And some of those, uh, you know, Ukraine until recently was not thinking about NATO membership, and Moldova has not. So we need to figure out some ways that we can strengthen the ties and encourage those countries without necessarily going the hard power route. I'm not quite sure if that means that I'm advocating that we use TTIP in a hard power way, but I think I'm trying to say that it's actually an alternative because it is so difficult to use hard power in these loaded situations.
0: Let me go to the second row right here.
5: Uh, thank you, Jean-François Boutin. Uh One question, uh, uh, an attempt at trying to link hard and soft power, uh, given the state, woeful state of uh, military budget in most of the countries of the Union, why not go back to the idea that was floated at one point by the commission but then did not go anywhere very fast, of opening up defense procurement on both sides, uh, two transatlantic firms. Uh, that would mean that countries would get probably more value for the money. There would be less interoperability uh, issues, uh, and uh, a lot of big firms would be lobbying pretty hard for the success of TTIP. So, but does the panel think about this idea?
3: I would be. Sh- I would be. It's an interesting idea. I, I would, I would be, want to think carefully before doing that in TTIP. I mean, I would also want to think about whether NATO could be the framework for, for that kind of negotiation, whether it has you know, is, is TTIP the best vehicle for that? Um, but that's a, certainly a creative way of getting, cutting down barriers that also would uh, support uh, the strategic interests of the, member, of, of the countries involved.
2: The EU actually has uh, a directive that takes a step in that direction. Uh, I think it's being implemented now. I think this is when it starts to become effective. And it really only applies to defense procurement that does not involve R&D. So many companies, as you know, they get a lot of state subsidies, obviously, for the R&D work. And then they need to have the contracts afterwards. But this would be for, like, buying boots, uniforms, things like that. It's unclear. It's it's to open it up across Europe, so to make it part of the single market. It does not say anything about third countries. So I've heard different interpretations about whether it will, in fact, lead to a fortress Europe or whether it keeps it open. Um, But there's no reason not to think that it would, in this limited way, uh, open it up to US firms or other firms.
1: I think it's a very interesting idea. It's not obvious to me how it works out on balance. I think you're right. You'd see some companies that saw that as real opportunity. You'd see some companies that saw that as a real threat, depending on how they think they would do in a more competitive environment. Get
0: over on the left side there.
6: Uh, Chris Bladowski from Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. Many previous panelists have spoken about the different degrees of fervor with which the Europeans support TTIP and the Americans support TTIP. But suppose there is a a dramatic turnaround, and there is a groundswell of opposition to TTIP in the United States, and say it's concentrated in the state of Texas. Unlike what we see in Europe, where everyone goes to a particular capital, let's say we talked about Berlin, it's unlikely that the Americans in Texas would would go to Austin. It's far more likely that they would head to Brussels, because they would correctly think— I'm sorry, not in Brussels, uh, to Washington, D.C., because they they would correctly think that that's where the power is. The fact that we spoke about 200,000 people going to Berlin and other capitals— gives me thought that there is a certain incohesion in terms of that opposition, because clearly the the center of power in negotiating this deal is in Brussels, not in individual capitals. So the question to the panel is, for all of us in this room and many others, corporate interests, special interests, non-governmental uh, organizations, and the US government, whether at the federal level or at the state level, if we all collectively were to contribute to um, the turning around of that fervor in Europe, uh, to clinch this deal, should we all go to Berlin, Vienna, and Paris to do that, or should we head to Brussels? Uh, how do we effectively deal with this? Um, how do I? Sh- how should I say it? Um, ineffectiveness, if I want to use an undiplomatic way, in in the protests in Europe.
3: Well, I I think that um, you know not not to. Cop out here, but I do think you have to do both. The reason I, why do I say that? Um, you need to go to Berlin, for example, because only a country like Germany, with the kind of leadership role it has in the EU, only a strong voice from a country like Germany, with the leadership role it has in the EU, can really communicate on a European level the strategic importance of TTIP. Right? You have that. That is a, a crucial role that Germany has to play from now on, now until we get it past the finish line. On the other hand, in Brussels, DG Trade. Is responsible for every, doing everything, setting the broad lines of trade policy, negotiating day to day. So you need to do both. But I think you would, it would be a it would be a uh, big mistake not to also uh, go to the biggest capital, which commands the most respect and has the most
2: power. I think it's the capitals that are of real importance right now. For this particular reason, I think that the Commission and DG Trade wants to get this agreement. There are always moments when trade negotiators get bogged down and find all the problems, that's what. That's how it works. Um, but it is, as Peter said, Berlin, which has been a leader in this since the very beginning. This was, in a sense, Angela Merkel's project. And at the same time, we now have this country that gets something like 40% of its GDP from trade with people out on the street against a, tr- a trade agreement. And But the thing I would caution about is that it's very hard for American institutions to go and argue in Berlin for TTIP, because the arguments that are being made against TTIP are actually somewhat anti-American. They're very much embroiled in with the NSA, uh, with the increase in the migration. We've seen a ratcheting up of uh, remarks about the Iraq War. Uh, And so I think that we need to be careful in terms of American institutions going over and lobbying, and this is what su- some of what Susan Danger said over lunch, in looking to the European companies, as opposed to Amcham EU, taking on a major role in the European debate. Um, but I think it is I would also say that each national, within the EU, each national community is having its own debate, and each of them is a little bit different. And so you have a wide range of different communications going on.
0: It, it reminds me a little bit of when, when we were having a, a, the debate about Trade Promotion Authority in the United States, and, and a, a group of activists in Oregon got together a, a hot air balloon. And, and, and they, they followed Ron Wyden everywhere that he went with a, a hot air balloon, telling them not to sell out the progressive agenda. Uh, and they knew that he was a, a, an important player, and that he would be sympathetic to their views. And I think that, you know, that's where that kind of targeting comes from. You look for the soft target, the the, the most likelihood of success at the highest level of, of influence, and it's not always right at the top. Um, and we have time for one more question, I think. Um, yes, ma'am, right there.
2: Thank you, I'm Courtney Vaughan. I noted that the. Program description also identified cybersecurity, and I heard you spoke about different security issues. Could you at least touch on that particular topic since it's something that has been highly spoken about among various panels and places?
0: Fair game. Is is TTIP going to do anything about cybersecurity?
3: Do we know? I, I like to take it from a slightly different angle, related angle. Um, And that has to do with with sort of the digital economy. If you look at this this idea that we need to have new rules, I mean, a lot of it is that the rules, we don't have a lot of rules for the digital economy. And a lot of the clashes we're having are exactly in that area. So if you look at, for example, whether a company has to hand over code, whether a company has to have a, um, a server. Uh, localize or can have it wherever it wants to I mean those are really big issues that have to do with how much control the state should have over the actions of uh, you know over private actors and so those to me are really crucial to have in TTIP that's not exactly an answer to your question but it, I hope mean, maybe in a related way it, it is. Yeah.
2: No, no, I,
1: I guess I would just say you know one of the things that's happened as we've had this discussion is there's a lot of potential for, for TTIP to take on things. And if you look and you say, where would you like to have high standards? Where would it be important? Where could you see a potentially large effect? That's one of those areas. I think what we've seen, in, and I don't know the specifics of where, where there are discussions, if any, on cybersecurity, what we've seen in a lot of these other areas, the previous panel discussed some things like financial services, is you'll say there's potential there but there's not an eagerness to take that on in that particular context. So it, it strikes me as an area of opportunity. Whether they'll take up that opportunity, I just don't know.
2: Interesting. I mean, we have now um, a couple of weeks ago signed an umbrella agreement on sharing data among law enforcement. And that's pending um, the judicial, passage of judicial redress here on this side. I would hate to see something on cybersecurity Get put into TTIP that then would get TTIP mired into this particular set of other arrangements at a very critical time. I do totally agree that once we get the initial set of things for TTIP, we will find more things. And I would not be at all surprised to see that cybersecurity come forward as one of those elements. But right now, I, I would think that we're better off to focus on some of the other things.
0: I, th- I think I would add add to that just that uh, uh, cybersecurity, in addition to uh, uh, data privacy, and, and I think financial regulations, which was mentioned in the earlier panel, are they're they're too paradoxically too important to do in, in TTIP. Uh, they're they're too new. Uh, they're, there's too much going on uh, policy wise. For you to stick that into a trade agreement um, and actually have trade negotiators come up with with rules for the future in a binding trade agreement. There are other uh, venues uh, for doing that. Uh, And I I mean, if I were a trade negotiator, I would just want them to please not put that on my plate so that we could do some of this other stuff. Um, I think we should just wrap up uh, with that question. And um, I believe we are taking a break, Ryan, after this. So please. Feel free to uh, head out and get some refreshments.